morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled Healthcare Cost Management for Employers. Today's, presenta today's presentation is being moderated by myself, Natalie Cole. Um, if you have any questions um, or if there's any issues in regards to audio or if there's any issues that you have during the poll questions, anything, um, it's my phone number is 323-805-2928, um, but definitely email is always the best option, which is natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-C at dickerson-group.com. This course has been approved for one hour of CE credit by the California Department of Insurance. We have also been instructed to conduct polling questions throughout the presentation. In order to receive CE credit, you must answer all three polling questions in this case because your, response, your responses are recorded. In order to answer the polling questions, it, it is advised to view this presentation on a computer as opposed to a phone. And of course, if you have any questions during today's presentation, please type them in the comment box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen and we will answer them at the end of the presentation. All of our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck will be available to you by email and they'll be sent by me, which is usually within 24 to 48 hours after the presentation. And lastly, we, record, we report CE credits to the Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. Your CE credits should show up on your CDI online account within 30 days. And of course, if there are any issues, please definitely get in touch with us. Now, for today's instructor. Today's instructor is Mr. David Fear Sr. He is a 42-year veteran of the employee benefits business, a managing partner of the Scheffler and Fear division of Dickerson Insurance Services, which is an Alera Group company, and he specializes in alternative funding, benefit compliance, flexible benefit plans, and group purchasing arrangements. He is also the former president of the California and National Associations of Health Underwriters, as well as the 2015 recipient of the NAHU Harold R. Gordon Memorial Award as the Health Insurance Person of the Year. That's very impressive. So, Mr. Fear, how are you this morning? I am good. Uh, thanks for that introduction, uh, Natalie, and uh, thanks for everybody uh, joining us today. Uh, I still I see we still have some attendees coming on board and and uh, we're going to get moving ahead here but uh, appreciate everybody being able to take off a uh, busy time of the year and uh, attend this course so without any further ado we'll get to uh, get moving along here I just want to mention that uh, today's co-sponsor of the course is uh, Cigna uh, and Oscar Cigna Oscar uh, they're um, uh, a, a GA a partner of ours, and they are offering fully insured group health plans for California small employers with two to 100 employees. They feature now both PPO and EPO plans using one of the most cost-effective provider networks in the United States, and that's the, uh, the Cigna network. Uh, all of the plans that they sell in California are ACA compliant. They offer a choice of platinum, gold, silver, and bronze plan designs. And all of their plans cover the essential benefits outlined in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, all of their plans are, combat uh, are compatible with uh, HRA, HSA, and FSA programs. And we've talked uh, about those in the past. 
And uh, one of the features that uh, they also offer is their award-winning healthcare concierge services that provide members with personal attention and cost savings, uh, including wellness, virtual care, and provider selection assistance. And that's a, that's a very big benefit uh, in today's market. Um, they're very competitively priced and, and now can go alongside of some of the local HMO plans, such as uh, Kaiser Permanente. Uh, we're proud to have uh, Cigna Oscar as a GA partner uh, with Dickerson and uh, are grateful for their co-sponsoring today's presentation. So uh, with that in mind, let's kind of plow ahead here. Uh, some of you may have heard this presentation about a year ago. I, um, I had an opportunity to present this down in uh, uh, the desert at the, um, uh, the desert chapter uh, AHU down in uh, Palm Springs. and they asked me to um, present it at that time as a CE course. And since then we've refiled the course and added some, some new information to it. So some of you who may have uh, attended that course before will get some new info here. Uh, obviously it's no secret that America is in a, uh, a healthcare cost crisis. This has been, it's been going on for a while. And in spite of what the politicians and others may say, uh, we have, uh, we have some real problems in this country when it comes to uh, healthcare costs. Uh, there've been a lot of reports detailing that the cost of healthcare in America uh, ha has become a, a serious problem. Um, in fact, I, I recommend uh, if you have uh, some spare time and you listen to books on, uh, well, it used to be books on tape, now it's audible, but I, I've listened to uh, uh, three different presentations, one called America's Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill, a very good write-up that was uh, featured in Time Magazine uh, a few years ago. Uh, another one called An American Sickness uh, by Elizabeth Rosenthal. And then some of you might uh, recall a movie, a documentary that came out a few years ago by Michael Moore called Sicko, which, uh, which uh, in of course Michael Moore's uh, way is uh, somewhat of a, um, uh, a play on, uh, on the system as it, as it exists. And, in uh, very interesting terms. So, you know, these and, and other investigative reports clearly show that there's something wrong in the American healthcare system today. We, we rank number one in the world in terms of healthcare costs in the world. We, we have the most expensive system, but unfortunately we rank number 36 in terms of overall quality indicators. And, and what, that, what that means is that spending more money does not equal improved results. And that's, a, that's an issue that um, we, we need to talk about today. Um, there are some uh, who believe that there is a kind of a healthcare OPEC. Uh, and, and some of you who are old enough to remember uh, the OPEC back in the, the 70s when the oil producing uh, economic cartel uh, decided to uh, jack up the price of oil and, and put us all uh, in big long lines at the uh, gas station. Well, there's some that believe that there's a healthcare OPEC here in this country. It's made up of hospitals, uh, physicians, big pharma, uh, medical device manufacturers, and insurance companies, all of whom have some sort of a control or manipulation on healthcare prices. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. When you look at the American healthcare system today, there are really two key uh, healthcare payers in America. First off, the, the biggest single payer is government and through public programs such as Medicare and Medicaid 
and um, there are about 116 million people who receive their health care through a government program such as Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the VA, um, uh, Indian uh, Health Plan, etc. cetera. Uh, that, that system is funded by taxes on payroll and other fees that uh, users may pay. The other biggest uh, big payer uh, are collectively our employers who, who provide a tax-exempt healthcare benefits to their workers. And uh, currently employer coverage is received by about 159 million people. So co collectively employers are the bigger payer, but as the single, single uh, largest entity uh, paying for benefits, it's, it's still the government. Um, of course, large employers are now mandated to offer coverage and, and provide, a, quote unquote, a, a subsidy that limits the employee's share of cost to less than 10% of their wages. And we've, we've talked about that in, um, in the past with my uh, presentations on the Affordable Care Act. And then, then you have small employers uh, who are or were uh, being provided incentives to offer coverage to their workers. So um, the, the employer system, which is a good system in, in many respects, is somewhat fractured in that you don't have any single one employer big enough to really exercise control over pricing like the government can do. So the question that a lot of people ask me is, well, why is the employer-based system important? If it's, if it's so fractured and, and this and that, why, 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 why even have that? Why not merge everything into, into a single payer system? Well, first off, what a lot of politicians do not want to tell you is that having an employer system relieves the government for paying for the full cost of health care through taxes, since employers are, are, are now providing a tax-exempt subsidy for their employees to receive health care benefits. And when you think about it, um, because the government is, you know, even though the government may print the money up, the, the bottom line is that uh, it, it only has so much money, and it's easier to just say to the employers, you will provide this benefit, and regardless of the cost, uh, you'll, you'll have to do this, and, and we'll provide some tax uh, exemptions here for you to do that. And that's, that's the way it's worked for, um, you know, since the, the 1940s. Um, the second thing is that employers, and, and particularly labor unions, have been innovators in the healthcare system due to the market forces to compete for workers. So, they, so they'll implement uh, unique benefit designs and wellness and provider partnership programs. And, and, and overall, I would say that's good for the economy and commerce in general by, by using private sector providers and private sector uh, employers and, and labor unions to uh, be in the market to uh, uh, implement or um, you know, look at, develop these, these things. Um, employers, frankly, have led the way in healthcare cost containment, something which the government only picked up uh, on late in the game. Uh, when I think about healthcare cost containment, I, I look back to the 70s when, when we were selling, um, you know, first dollar health plans that allowed you to see any doctor or hospital you wanted to. There were there were just no controls, and then when the price of, of uh, uh, you know, healthcare really began to increase uh, beginning in the 80s. Uh, they they began to implement things that would help contain healthcare costs, and you saw the development of you know HMO and PPO plans and and utilization review and these types of things, which later the government began to uh, 
pick up on and implement in their systems as well. Um, and then the fourth, and I think most important, is that at the end of the day, that the private healthcare system uh, is more transparent than a government system. There's a lot of things that can be hidden in government systems that don't necessarily uh, are, are, are not necessarily evident to the average working person. Whereas the private healthcare system, because it's regulated under federal ERISA law and and various state laws and and what have you. Uh, tends to be a little more transparent. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, black and white that uh, that you see uh, very clearly. So those are some of the reasons why uh, I'm still a believer that having a, a, an employer-based system is important. So the question then gets asked, well, where are employers at regarding providing healthcare benefits? Well, as, as you all know, the Affordable Care Act still remains the law of the land. Uh, the employer mandate, that which was enacted in 2014, remains in place. Uh, the IRS is now actively, and I will say actively, uh, collecting penalties and fines from, quote, uh, applicable large employers who are not either offering affordable coverage or uh, not uh, paying their fair share for the coverage. Um, the healthcare marketplaces that were formerly called exchanges and now referred to as marketplaces are still in place and some states, and I think California is one of them, are doing reasonably well in this regard. They, they're operating exchanges that are doing what they were created to do, which was help consumers uh, provide uh, one single area where they can go in and shop for plans. And fortunately for us, uh, agents uh, are involved in that. And so it's a good partnership between agents and, and um, the marketplace and, and consumers. The uh, United States Department of Health and Human Services reports that more than 80% of employers with 500 or more employees are now self-insuring their group health benefits. And, and that number is increasing, especially in the mid-sized employer market, where we're talking about employers with 50 to, say, 500 employees. That's the mid-sized market. And that, that number of, of self-insurance uh, is, is increasing uh, considerably. Uh, some states, unfortunately, prohibit or discourage, quote, these small employers from, from uh, self-funding their health benefits. California is, is one of them. But, um, but even those uh, uh, laws that have been enacted to discourage small employers are, be, are being revised and, and changed. A, a big complaint by employers that we hear is that the lack of claims information from their fully insured carrier. And it's interesting because some states, and Texas is one of them, require by law to um, that claims information has to be provided by the uh, health insurance company or health plan back to the employer that's uh, buying that, that coverage. It's a little uh, similar to what we do have here in California, where if you buy workers' comp insurance, the, the uh, workers' comp insurer must provide you with loss runs, uh, claims information on your workers' comp policy, no matter what your size. And uh, what, what some employers are complaining about today is that, that they're not getting that same uh, treatment on their, their health plan, and they would really like to know, you know what's going on there. So let me uh, first uh, deal with uh, polling question one of three. Um, question number one is the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, was repealed by Congress in 2020 because of COVID-19. Is that true or false? And uh, Natalie is 
opened up the poll and if you could please respond, that would be great. And Natalie, I'll let you uh, chime in on that. I forgot to bring my uh, Jeopardy music with me again this week. <laughs> Dark on it. Maybe I'll get that straight next year. <laughs> I think so. I think we have to wait till next year at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we have about uh, 45 more seconds. We want to give everyone at least a minute um, to answer this question. And please, just as a reminder, um, CE credits only apply if you answer all three polling questions. And of course, this is the one, the first of, out of the three. Yeah, and this is the softball pitch here, okay? This, is, this should be an easy one. <laughs> Unless you were sleeping. <laughs> That's also a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we're going to go ahead and close the poll. And the results are 86% voted false. Okay, very good. That's 86% of you who are awake. I'm I'm very pleased. Thank you very much. Okay, let's uh, let's continue moving on here. Thank you. Uh, so, what have employers done to contain their healthcare costs up to now? And you, you I hope you can see this little chart that uh, was actually prepared by the Kaiser Family Foundation. They're a uh, they're a nonprofit foundation separate of Kaiser Permanente Health Plan, but it's a foundation uh, uh, that has been in operation for several years and they do uh, an annual um, contribution, well, a healthcare uh, survey. And you can see here that, that in a 10 year period, the, the cost of uh, rising healthcare costs or premium contributions in this case uh, have risen uh, steadily. Um, in, in 2009, it was a, a combination of about $12,000 a year. Uh, that rose up to about uh, 16,000 five years later. And in 2019, uh, over $20,000 a year. And this is a combination of both the company or employer's contribution as well as the employee's contribution. And as you can see here, the employees are paying anywhere between 25 to um, you know, 35, 40% of the total cost. So what, what have employers done? Well, they've shifted some of the claim costs to employees in the form of deductibles and co-insurance and co-payments, including um, uh, implementing, uh, many have implemented these consumer-directed health plans, CDHP plans, that I think uh, have some uh, success in helping employees understand what the real cost of healthcare is about. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, they've added, uh, a lot of management and cost containment features such as utilization review, uh, second opinions, uh, case management services, uh, in, in, in incorporated those into almost all of their benefit plans. Um, you know, un, unlike the 70s when you could you go anywhere you wanted and have anything, you know, procedure done, uh, it's, it's a lot different today. Um, they've moved the majority of their employees to some type of managed care plan via an HMO, a PPO, or an EPO, which uh, effectively limit provider choices. Uh, in some cases, will require that there be gatekeepers to help manage the uh, the patient's uh, uh, activity in the healthcare system, and almost all the time have pre-certification of all non-emergency services. And 
and that's just what managed care is about, and, and it has made a, uh, a dent in, in utilization. Um, employers have, as I said before, have taken on more risk by setting up uh, alternative funded plans, uh, and I've referred to these in the past, self-funded, level-funded, uh, HRA, HSA type uh, arrangements. Uh, and then it, when, when employers begin to see that what the cost of healthcare really was, they began to take a more aggressive measures, including a direct contracting with providers. And, and we'll talk uh, a little bit more about that. Um, group health plans actually started out as a direct contracting method. Uh, I, the story of the Texas school teachers down in, in, in Waco, um, they, the, the, the school teachers reached out to local hospitals and began to contract directly with those hospitals uh, as opposed to providing uh, insurance coverage. Uh, this is how the original Blue Cross Blue Shield plans uh, started out. Uh, here in, on the West Coast, uh, the Kaiser uh, Shipbuilding uh, uh, Company, especially during World War II, uh, contracted with local clinics and hospitals to provide their workers with affordable uh, healthcare benefits. And you might say that that was a, a major uh, way that the employer-based system really took off, especially here on the West Coast. Uh, Boeing Aerospace up in Seattle and Tacoma has been a longtime uh, proponent of, of contacting, contracting directly with uh, providers in, in the Seattle-Tacoma area. And then finally, Taft-Hartley Trust, which are jointly managed uh, union uh, plans with uh, labor and management jointly managing these plans have reached out in certain areas of the country and done direct contracting with, with hospitals or doctor groups or, or clinics. Um, large numbers obviously give employers uh, better negotiating uh, clout. Uh, eventually some of these large employers established their own clinics. They uh, actually began to employ doctors and they contracted with local nonprofit hospitals uh, in advance uh, so that their, their costs were, were under control. And that brings us to the, uh, the CalPERS story. And, and uh, I, I don't know how many of you have, have heard this story, but I, it's worth telling because it's a, it's a good indication of, of, of how things can work. Uh, you know, CalPERS is the, one of the largest self-insured, uh, op, uh, operate one of the largest self-insured uh, health plans in the United States with more than 1.4 million members, and that's both active employees and retired uh, employees. And uh, of course, their headquarters are up here in the Sacramento area where, where I live. And they adopted a, a new pricing strategy in the early 2000s. And initially, this focused on, on uh, two specific uh, procedures, elective knee and elective hip replacements which had been costing CalPERS in their, in their self-funded plan anywhere between $20,000 and $120,000 per procedure. It, it, it was just very expensive and the, and the variation of cost was, was huge. Um, CalPERS could not find any correlation between the higher price uh, being paid and an increase in the quality or the outcomes of, of that procedure. So what they did is they established what's called a, a $30,000 reference point that it would pay for these two procedures. And they just said, this is what we're gonna pay for these procedures. And then they turned around and designated 41 hospitals who had agreed to provide this service 
based on certain quality measures and, and rating of, of average, who had quality measures, uh, ratings of, of either average or above average, and met the ACA requirement of insured quality. So uh, they, they said out of all the hundreds of hospitals in California, which you have access to, these 41 uh, will provide uh, these, th this service at this, this reference point. And if you use one of those hospitals, your, your copayment will be a 10% copayment if the procedure cost $30,000 or less. But uh, if you decide to go outside of this network, you will not only pay a 10% copayment, but you'll pay 100% of any cost over $30,000 if you go out of network. Now, to us today, that's nothing unusual because most PPO plans that we have have similar deals. If you go out of network, you pay more. But CalPERS took it a step further by saying, look, here's the network of providers we want you to use because they have a good track record and they're willing to do this uh, procedure at a, a reference point that we believe is fair and, and adequate. So what were the results of this? And, and again, this is going back almost 20 years. They saved nearly $6 million in the first two years of operating this program. And then at the end of those two years, they, they had other hospitals knocking on the door to get approved to provide these services to CalPERS members. And because they are such a large purchaser of, of healthcare with these self-insured plans, uh, that, uh, that really provided some clout in the market. And you began to see private plans and private employers uh, implement similar things. So, you know, that brings us to, well, what if you're not a government agency and, and you, you don't have those big numbers? So what, what happened was, is that we've seen over the last uh, few decades that large employers came together and formed what, was, what are called business groups on health, BG, BGHs. And these allow them protection under antitrust laws to be able to negotiate with providers. Uh, they, they are able to negotiate lower costs with, with providers. Uh, they are able to implement uh, uh, measured quality indicators for improved results. These, these providers agree to, to provide data and information that measures the quality of the care that they're providing. And then uh, one outset of this was that they actually formed uh, private purchasing cooperatives for insured coverage. And um, as, as you know, here in California, the, the private purchasing cooperatives uh, began uh, uh, almost 25 years ago and uh, came as a, a result of the fact that you had private entities uh, who've gone out and, and put these things together to negotiate uh, better deals for their members. What you have in the less than large employer market, so I won't just say small employers, but mid-sized employers, um, have been able to leverage providers through carrier contracts for the use of PPO, HMO, or EPO programs. So if I'm not a big employer and I'm not a member of a business group on health, uh, I, I might go and contract with, a, with an insurance company such as you know, Anthem or, or uh, Blue Shield or United Health or Aetna or whatever to use their contracts for my people. Um, using their PPO or HMO uh, products. And because today most carriers have the purchasing power of 
many employer customers, they aggregate those customers together and they're able to negotiate better deals than what a single employer uh, would be able to get on their own. And then, then that brings us to another important part of, of, of what the private sector has done, and that is the creation of what's called capitation models, where more risk is assumed by the provider than by the employer or the plan sponsor. And these capitation models, um, which, which I could take a whole CE hour on that just to talk about those, and I won't today, but those, those are available typically through fully insured uh, programs, and they can be available to some uh, self-insured programs as well. These capitated risk plans are nothing new. They, they frankly became a very key strategy back in the 1990s. Uh, large hospital chains and medical groups started negotiating for fixed payments, and they're at risk if the actual costs exceed those payments. So it's putting them at risk. Um, if, if they're you know, overpricing or their, their costs exceed that. Outside of California, many large employers enter into these capitation risk arrangements. Unfortunately, California requires a Knox Keene license and these uh, for such arrangements. And those, are, uh, those types of programs, they don't permit self-funded employers to do that in the state of California. So uh, you know, we, we have to be different, I guess. I will tell you that, as you all know, the ACA encouraged the formation of these things called accountable health plans, not association health plans, but accountable health plans. And that spawned some new initiatives in states that have high managed care participation. Effectively, the provider takes on more risk while the insurer provides catastrophic risk protection and administration of the program. So, so these types of capitated risk arrangements uh, have made a lot of uh, improvements in the market. But at the end of the day, uh, employers will tell you that there's still a need for some sort of a fee-for-service arrangement uh, where, where you're not prepaying the provider for services, but you're, you're paying the provider for the services rendered at the time of service. Uh, some employees and dependents, uh, they don't live or, or in an HMO or PPO service area, so they, they have to be on some sort of a fee-for-service plan. Uh, some employers want the flexibility of a benefit that allows for people to go in and out of network uh, services or have a self-referral without the use of a gatekeeper. And again, these fee-for-service plans typically can, you know, will have those options. Um, many employers, they want more control and cost transparency, so they set up a type of self-funded program that provides financial reports that are not currently offered through traditional fully insured plans. And this can be a, a very controversial point with a lot of insurance carriers and all, but, but when you ask uh, employers why they uh, turn to self-funding, they'll tell you, because I want to know how my money's being spent. I want more information. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's, what they'll, that's what they'll do. One um, alternative to capitation is a type of fee-for-service model that either uses a, a PPO or a metric-based pricing uh, that's also referred to as reference-based pricing. Um, reference-based pricing, just and, and I know many of you have probably heard about reference-based pricing, so this is nothing new, but let me just give you a little background on it because it's important to understand this in the right context. It came about after passage of the Medicare Modernization Act, the MMA. Um, it was signed into law 
the MMA was signed into law in 2003 by President Bush. And, and of course, most of us in the business know that the big thing that came out of the Medicare Modernization Act was the implementation of the Part D drug benefit, which uh, inter, uh, you know, was introduced through private insurers and health plans. However, another big thing that took place was that provider payments going forward in, in Medicare would, be, would now be based on provider costs and a reasonable profit margin to provide those services. So what, what we have, what we established was that following this, the government contracts with four different companies here in the United States to gather all of the cost and payment data from healthcare providers in their geographic region who are participating in Medicare. And if you're a provider, uh, you have to provide your cost information to the government each year in order to have the fees that you're charging considered for reimbursement. And the payments that the government then makes to you will vary by location, by the severity of service, and other factors that providers have agreed on in advance. But here's the fact that is very important. Prior to the Medicare Modernization Act, less than 50% of US providers participated in Medicare. They were accepting Medicare payments. Today, that number is over 90%. And uh, I'm not saying that it, it will always stay at 90%. And you know, we hear in the, in the papers and stuff all the time about you know, disagreements in Congress about uh, the fees and this and that. But, but frankly, um, you know, that the fact that so uh, high of a number of providers are accepting Medicare now means that that was a successful uh, arrangement. You know, some providers still claim to lose money when they see Medicare patients, but frankly, the facts show otherwise. Medicare typically pays providers to cover their costs and earn a modest profit of 25 to 50% for the service rendered. And since 2006, no hospital in the United States has gone out of business because it was not paid enough money for Medicare. Uh, some areas of the country, such as Florida, you see hospitals and medical groups advertising to seniors. And my question is, well, would, would they be doing that to try and attract seniors to use their system if they were losing money? I don't think so. Again, more than 90% of providers now accept Medicare patients. So. Perhaps the better way to put this, uh, you know, the, the claim that providers are, 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 you know, not making money is that maybe what we need to talk to is that they don't feel like the profit margin that they want from Medicare is adequate. And my question is, well, is that a form of price gouging? I mean, and, and yet we know that 75% of hospitals in the United States are, quote, nonprofit entities. So uh, the government continues to modify payments based on the annual cost data submitted by the, the various uh, Medicare providers. So Medicare, it's not perfect, but it, it certainly set us up in a position to say, is there a way to reimburse or pay these providers so that they'll, they'll make money and we can save money as employers uh, in, in our costs? So the question is, does reference-based pricing re really reduce costs? And, here are four examples that I think uh, show you how crazy pricing has become in the fee-for-service market here in, in California. Uh, the first example is a Medicare payment price point for a two-day stay in a California hospital. This was 
in 2018, uh, the data I had. And um, it's interesting, if you look at the red bar at the bottom, the bill from the hospital for this two-day stay was $89,136. That's the actual bill that, that came through. Yet, in the, uh, the, the actual cost of services, as reported by the hospital to the government later, showed that the actual cost of services was 9,827 bucks. Uh, the Medicare allowance paid that hospital 12,775. And uh, the, the interesting part is that the PPO plans allowance for those same charges was 36,964, which you could say, well, wow, that's a big savings over $89,000, but it's still at 30, almost $37,000 is three and a half times the actual cost of services reported to the government. So in this particular case, the reference-based pricing negotiated charges for this uh, uh, hospital stay came out to $19,162. And this was the amount that the third-party administrator paid to the hospital. The hospital agreed not to balance bill anybody. They accepted $19,162. So, and, and, and you know, this is not an unusual uh, factoid, okay? This, I, I see this happening a, a, a lot. Here's a second example, and the pricing variation for a CAT scan. Again, these are from two hospitals in the same California city in 2017. The Charge Master is the, is the uh, program that the hospital subscribes to to bill. In other words, it, it, you know, when you have a patient come in there and they're putting all this stuff on the computer, the Charge Master begins to calculate what those, uh, the cost of those services are. So the Charge Master billing uh, amount billed uh, for the first hospital was $5,840 for a uh, CAT scan session. The second hospital, the charge master billing, for whatever reason, was $3,147. Uh, down at the very bottom, you'll see the actual cost of service was very close for both hospitals. Hospital uh, A, $149. Hospital B, $151. Again, this was reported to the government. The Medicare allowed fee in this case was $199 or $201. The uh, PPO allowed fee up, up above, second from the top, 2920 and 1573 which which again if you're looking at this as a as a as a patient uncovered under a PPO plan say wow that's a that's a substantial savings almost half of of what the bill charges are but yet the reference based pricing negotiated fee in this case came out to almost the same at 348 and 352 and that's because in this case uh, the both hospitals were paid the same percentage of Medicare, almost the same percentage of Medicare over their, over their uh, actual costs. So there can be a substantial difference. And, and here are, again, two hospitals just a few miles apart that um, you can see this discrepancy. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting factoid. Here's another one that, that I think is good. Um, uh, again, a third party administrator that, that we've done some work with over the years provided this for the 2016-2017 plan years, they, they showed us the claims from uh, three employers, employer A, B, and C, and then the, the total claims for all three employers together. So I'll just take the blue one, the, the total of all, all three together here, 
where the total bill charges for inpatient hospital costs for these plan years for these employers totaled $4.6 million, whereas the Medicare allowed charges down at the bottom, $1.044 million. Uh, the reference-based pricing, uh, I'm sorry, the PPO allowed charges 3.386 million and the reference-based pricing negotiated charges, what was actually paid out at the end was 1.367 million. And again, you, you know, it varied by employer slightly. They had slightly different plan designs, but they just aggregated all these charges and claims together to, to provide us this data. Uh, again, I think that's... Um, that, that tells a, an interesting story. And then, and then finally, this is an interesting uh, point here, the pricing variation for emergency room physician fees. And uh, this is the national average from a third party administrator who was paying over $600 million in claims in the year 2017. So it's, so it's about four years old. And what they, what they showed here was that the claim have two types, moderate and high severity. So the high severity bill charges in blue averaged uh, $1,192 for uh, the emergency room physician fee charge versus the moderate severity at 333. The uh, actual cost of service down at the bottom, $56 for moderate, $158 for high severity, the Medicare allowance, 70 and 197. The RVP negotiated fee at 105 and 295. And the PPO allowance, 184 and 526. Now, a lot of people will say, well, Dave, you know, this bill charges thing is just ridiculous because nobody pays bill charges. Uh, don't bet on that. Uh, the, the fact is, is that there are a lot of people, especially outside of California, who, who are not on PPO plans and they get these these uh, bill charges, uh, they, they get a bill from the hospital with the charge master rates on it, and that's what the hospital is expecting to, for them to pay. Now, will they try to negotiate? Sure, most people will because they're so absurdly high. But uh, again, if you're, if you're enrolled in a Medicare plan or if you're enrolled in private insurance on a PPO or an employer who's, say, self-funded using reference-based pricing, uh, you know, you're not going to be paying these bill charges. You're going to be paying far less. So what we see is that reference-based pricing makes a difference. And I think it makes a big difference in these three areas, in the hospital or facility calls, uh, costs. Uh, Medicare payments are now bundled for many common procedures. That's good. Um, instead of starting with the charge master and working your way down, discounting off of that, Medicare now starts with the actual cost and then works their way up. And, and as you can see from these prior examples, that could be a substantial difference. You know, um, the, the, the second area is in medical devices, the cost of medical devices. They, they, it, it, you know, it no longer allows for a hospital or a physician to mark up the charge, thus eliminating a profit center for uh, that device that they're uh, installing or, or, or you know, putting in somebody's chest. I remember uh, a friend of mine had uh, uh, a pacemaker installed and, and, the, and the price for the actual medical device on, on the bill was $176,000 for this pacemaker. Um, and and do, do I think the insurance company ended up paying that? No, but that was the billed amount. 
And it just goes to show you that there's a big markup on medical devices. And then finally, in the area of diagnostic lab and, and imaging, I think Medicare does a good job in sifting out duplication or unneeded tests, as well as conflicts with physician-owned or hospital-based services. So those three areas, I think, is where reference-based pricing will make a difference. You'll notice on here, I left off physicians. And I left them off because I don't think that the physician costs are the problem in our country. I think that hospital medical devices and diagnostic lab and imaging costs are a, are a big problem, along with prescription drug. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So what does reference-based pricing cost? Well, there, typically there are two costs that you have to consider. There's the implementation cost that will vary based on what the employer's commitment is to a successful rollout of reference-based pricing. Uh, those, you, we, we need to have an estimate of those costs and a return of investment calculated before the plan is put into place so that using employer's claims data and some reasonable savings assumptions can tell us just, just what we're gonna do here. You know, the, the employer may save $100,000 a year in claims, but how much do they need to spend to implement the plan? You know, employee education, provider education, et cetera, et cetera. You know, $10,000, $15,000, well, you know, is the net of $90,000 or $85,000, is it worth it or not? Um, and then there's the ongoing costs that are paid through the third-party administrator to the reference-based pricing vendor. And there are probably two dozen reference-based pricing vendors in, in the United States today. And they sign a service agreement with the employer uh, that outlines what their services are and, and they charge typically a per employee per month cost that's close to what you might pay for a, a PPO access fee. And, and that would range anywhere between five and $20 uh, what we're seeing on the street. Uh, some reference-based pricing vendors uh, charge a percentage of documented savings. Uh, I, I have some questions about that. Uh, but but uh, but most vendors that that we work with and seen, they offer a full menu of services, including legal assistance and HR support. Because you know you're 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 going to have issues that may involve attorneys. You may and and HR uh, you know employee uh, satisfaction issues, and you need to be able to deal with those things and and uh, not turn your turn away. Okay, let's go to polling question number two which is the Medicare Modernization Act included these changes to the US healthcare system. A, it introduced a Medicare Part B drug benefit. B, it changed how providers are paid by the government. C, both of the above, or D, none of the above. So Natalie, I'll let you uh, count the clock there while I take no a problem. swig. No problem. We have about 40 seconds, give or take. Hopefully we'll get the same high percentage of correct answers on this one like we did the first one, right? <laughs> I know. I have hope in that too.
Okay, and I think we're just about ready to close it. Okay. How'd we do? Mm -hmm. Okay, the results are 80% said both of the above. Very good, very good. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, so before I leave the issue of reference-based pricing, because this comes up a lot, I, I get a lot of calls from, from brokers and, and other consultants about reference-based pricing. I, I put together, I, I think, five areas of consideration to successfully implement a reference-based pricing strategy. And I'm gonna kind of blow through this pretty fast because uh, we've got limited time here. The first, the first uh, consideration are employer decisions. The employer needs to decide if I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer the program as a, a full replacement, everybody's gonna be put on it, or is it gonna be offered as a dual choice uh, alongside of a, a PPO plan? Or is, is there gonna be a hybrid model where maybe uh, just the, um, uh, the hospital stuff is done on reference-based pricing, but the doctors are done on a PPO plan. We call that a hybrid. Um, and then what benefit changes are needed to influence the success of this program to get employees to enroll in the reference-based pricing plan if it's in fact just an option? Um, how does the employer wanna define reasonable fee? Again, if they're using a percentage of Medicare, they might start out and say, our definition of reasonable fee will be 150% of Medicare. Maybe it's a 175%. I've seen some employers with 125%. Uh, I think it depends on what area of the country you're in and, and what, what are providers used to getting uh, from Medicare and, and commercial carriers in that area. Um, who's gonna handle provider relations, including the legal issues surrounding uh, balanced billing conflicts and, and what's that gonna cost? Um, what's gonna be required of the HR department and our consultant and our TPA to see that this is implemented in a reasonable time frame? Uh, what's the employer willing to invest to get the program implemented? And what's gonna be the projected return of investment on this program? These are, these are things that the employers need to consider. Then the second area is member education. You, you, you know, the members gotta be buy off into this as well. So we, we've got to develop a plan document and an ID card that reflects language that a reasonable fee is being paid to providers. Uh, you know, if, they, if, if they're in a PPO plan, it's easy for the provider to see that PPO name and yeah, I'm a member of that PPO. Or uh, in the old days, they'd see a card that says uh, we pay usual, customary, and reasonable. Well, now we're, we're using a reasonable fee, and, and how, is that, how is that done? So the, the members need to understand what that means. Uh, an FAQ piece that's uh, generally included with the ID card, as well as website links that provide audio and visual instructions and explanations of these things that can be used by both the member and their healthcare provider. And if you're dealing with an, uh, a reference-based pricing company that doesn't provide some of these things, I'd consider not working with that company because that's a part of, of getting this to be successful is member education. Some uh, HR professionals will report that, you know, that they'll need four to six months of lead time to get this implemented successfully. Um, you can't have too much employee communication and you can't forget about local healthcare providers, which brings us to the third issue, which are provider issues. Uh, members are gonna wanna check with their existing or their new providers 
to see if they accept a plan that pays this reasonable fee. And a good way to start out for that is to find out if that provider already accepts Medicare patients. That's half the battle right there. And given the fact that 90% of providers are now accepting Medicare, um, it, it's not as hard as you would think it would be. Uh, the third-party administrators should provide a, a provider hotline so that providers can, uh, you know, provider offices can call in and if they have challenges on the billing side, they can they can deal directly with the TPA and the and the provider and get those resolved. Um, they got to educate uh, uh, employees to pass along to their providers the information about how the plan pays a reasonable fee and that such fees are paid quickly and fairly by the plan administrator. Uh, you know that, that that's important. The quickly and fairly. Uh, you know if you if you negotiate some price with a provider, but then you take six months to pay them, that's not going to work very well. So they they need to see that they're going to get they're going to be paid fairly quickly, and and fairly. It's going to pay them what what the reasonable fee is. They need to understand that a reasonable fee is a factor of Medicare or whatever the pricing point that has been adopted by the employer plan. And then, as I said before, many plans will start with a, just the hospital and facility program under reference-based pricing in the first year. And they'll leave the physicians in a PPO plan in the short term. And then later, they might move into a dual choice, you know, reference-based pricing alongside a PPO. And then finally into a full PPO replacement within four to five years. So there's a lot of different options there. Let's talk about balanced billing issues because uh, they're going to happen. Okay, any reference-based pricing plan, you should expect that you're going to have balanced billing by the uh, by the provider. And when they do, the plan administrator should have a system in place to handle member calls about balanced billing. When that member gets a, a balanced bill that he, he didn't understand why he's getting it, they, they shouldn't be calling the provider. They should be calling the administrator and say, I got this balanced bill here. I I I, I don't understand it. And in more than 90% of the cases, a call from the plan administrator to that provider is all that's needed to remind the provider that the plan pays a reasonable fee based on a percentage of Medicare, and it's paid it's paid it quickly in exchange for the provider not to balance bill the members. Now, if the member gets sent to collections, and that has happened, then the reference-based pricing legal advocacy team handles it from there. They negotiate with the provider to develop reasonable fee that's acceptable to both parties. They extract the promise from the provider not to balance bill, and they contact the credit bureau with documentation that this was settled and it needs to come off the member credit history. And this, by the way, is per federal law. That was part of part of what was enacted into the ACA is these, these providers reporting things to the credit bureaus, and then th these things stay on there when they're not resolved, and that's not right. So the the legal team at the RBP company, that's part of what they do. And then in a small number of cases, the legal department will take the matter to arbitration. I will tell you that less than 1% of all escalated claims go to arbitration and 99% of those claims are handled or settled before that happens. And in the end, you have to look at it this way. The providers really don't want their fee charges revealed in public records. And so, you know, you've got some you've got some clout there. And then finally, the fifth consideration is reviewing and modifying the plan. They, they the third party administrator and the reference based pricing organization, they need to provide detailed reports 
uh, to uh, you, the advisor, or and your client on pricing and savings, the utilizations of services, the balance billing incidents, if, if any, have taken place. Uh, they can then uh, look at changes in the payment recommendations based on certain procedures and bundling opportunities. Uh, and, and they can look at the government contract reports, which are public information to evaluate that. They can compare their employer plan to the Medicare results and try to keep them parallel. Uh, the HR issues, including member education challenges. You have to constantly, you know, work with the HR people to make sure that they're they're getting this stuff, um, you know, resolved and, and the members are, are happy. And then finally, provider issues, including education and payment acceptability. So this is an ongoing process. You don't just put this thing in and then walk away. Uh, it's, an, it's an ongoing deal. And that's why large employers who are spending millions of dollars in healthcare costs uh, feel like this is a, this is a necessary part of, of containing their costs. So let me just kind of summarize reference-based pricing as, as I see it today. First off, it allows full freedom of choice to providers. You can use any provider in the United States, okay? They, they don't have to be in a network. You can use any doctor or hospital you want. It maximizes the cost savings by changing the definition of usual, customary, and reasonable fee to a reasonable fee which is defined as a percentage of Medicare allowance, which will vary by region and provider type. And, and again, this is something which 90% of providers are now accepting. They're accepting Medicare payment. Um, there's an increased price transparency through the use of uh, tools such as the Healthcare Blue Book that you can go online and you can actually shop and, and look and see what doctors and hospitals charge for these services and fees in advance. Uh, and it can it can be used just for uh, both for facility and or professional services. We've already mentioned that. Uh, I've already mentioned that it can be offered as a full replacement. Everybody gets put into it or as a hybrid where you've got reference-based pricing for um, uh, the hospital, but a PPO plan for the doctors or as a dual choice, a reference-based pricing plan or a PPO plan as a dual choice. Uh, the, the key to success and in reference-based pricing is to eliminate balance billing by the providers, which is prohibited under Medicare, I might add. They can't balance bill Medicare patients, that's illegal. And so you have to, you know, you have to kind of use the, uh, the, the, the care and the, the fly and the honey approach with, with um, uh, outside of Medicare. And then you have better claims advocacy so that both the TPA and the reference-based pricing organizations can provide HR and legal support to the members if there are provider conflicts. Let me just touch on prescription drugs because cost containment in a benefit plan cannot avoid the issue of prescription drugs, okay? Um, prescription drugs now approach 20% of healthcare costs in America. Uh, when I started out in the business in 1979, it was less than 3%. Today, it's exploded to 20%, seven times what it was 42 years ago. Yet of, of that expense in America, 80 to 90% are generic drugs. You'd say, wow, why, why, is, it, why is it so expensive when 80 and 90% of, of prescription drugs now being administered uh, are generic? Um, and that's because I think the cost of specialty Rx has gone through the roof. It's really expensive. 
And as a, uh, as a, as a person who has a spouse that is receiving uh, care for a uh, uh, Crohn's disease and that the cost of the uh, prescription that, that my, my wife has to use to curb Crohn's disease is extremely expensive. And she's, she's been using this for almost 20 years. Um, there are no generic equivalents for um, biologic uh, uh, type drugs. Uh, Medicare, unfortunately, is prohibited by law from negotiating prescription drug prices with manufacturers. That was that was part of the deal uh, negotiated back in the in the, when when this was all passed into law. And I'm not going to get into the political side of that, but but there is a political fight brewing today over giving Medicare the ability to do that, the same as the Canadians and the Europeans. Uh, I don't know where that will end. But employers have to play with the cards that they are dealt. So most employers are contracting with PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit managers. And through those PBMs, they, they uh, not only develop uh, a formulary that they can use of, of you know, non-generic drugs that they want used in their plan, just like an insurance carrier would, um, but they also uh, can arrange for the wholesale purchase of non-generic drugs from outside United States. And, and very important is, they can offset their costs with rebates. And this is a big deal. Uh, the estimates are that 24% of drug costs in the United States in 2022 will be rebates passed through from manufacturers who are now filling the heat on this. So rebates are a big deal. Uh, you know, I just, I just mentioned, for example, that my wife, who uses a, a particular type of uh, drug for for her condition. Um, just this last year, uh, uh, 2020, started receiving a, um, uh, a a rebate type deal for her copayment. What they call copayment assistance, and it it basically saved us seven thousand dollars a year uh, from our uh, out of pocket deductible cost because of this type of copayment or rebate arrangement that the manufacturer. Um, put through. A lot of that is because they've now developed other biologics that are competing with that. So that's, that's a good thing. I will tell you that many business groups on health are working with private sources to increase the rebate numbers from prescription drug manufacturers before the government uh, intercedes. Because the, again, the politics of the government coming in and doing it might not be as favorable to the private sector as what we have. So let me kind of uh, provide a, a, a summary and conclusion here. Um, you know, employers have, have been adopting cost containment strategies that are appropriate for each of their situations. Small employers, you know, have moved to managed care and, and we see more narrow network plans because uh, it's, a, it's less expensive uh, uh, premium rates using a narrow network. Um, even, even the, you know, we all know that the big, uh, the big carriers, the blues who, have, have the largest you know, provider network in America, United Healthcare, uh, Aetna, uh, Cigna. They all have uh, you know, their, their full networks and they have their narrow network plans and that's, that makes a difference. Um, small employers, of course, are you know, purchasing fully insured plans that many times will feature some innovative provider risk assumptions like capitation or wellness and concierge care. Uh, the use of alternative funding such as HSA, HRA, FSAs, and or consumer-directed plan designs 
And then small employers can rely on exchanges and purchasing pools to negotiate with providers, which then translates to a, a, a better premium rate that they pay. For the large employers, their situation is a little different. Most of them are self-funding with customized plan designs that, that drive people to less expensive uh, sources of health care. You know, it's, it's better to have a, uh, an employer, employee use an urgent care center on a Friday night as opposed to the hospital uh, emergency room. Uh, the use of uh, uh, pharmaceutical benefit management and reference-based pricing vendors uh, have now become pretty commonplace with large employers. Uh, most of them are, are, are now putting in price transparency tools that will help drive usage into more efficient networks. And uh, many of these large employers do rely on purchasing pools, including captive arrangements, I might add, which is another story, uh, to provide protection from antitrust legal issues so that they can negotiate costs with healthcare providers and drug manufacturers. There's no question that the tight, tightly managed care systems, say, such as Kaiser Permanente, have shown long-term cost containment savings, and others are following in that path. And I, and I use Cigna Oscar as a good example of that with their development of their new EPO programs that uh, even though they pay a, a fee for service, uh, they do a, a really good job of, of managing utilization through their concierge care uh, programs. That's, that's good. Um, you know, we, we are now seeing that uh, uh, self-funding uh, of these um, uh, the types of uh, um, um, capitation arrangements can be available for groups as small as uh, 500 members or more, and, and that's being done actively. And then you've got self-funded employers who continue to seek out cost containment benefits, which maintain a balance uh, of, of thought between what the chief financial officer and the human resource manager uh, feel like they need. Uh, they try to challenge employees to become more involved in the purchase of health care. Uh, you know, frankly, if an employee, all they're paying is a $10 or $20 copayment for an office visit, they're completely out of touch with the fact that that office visit charge itself is well over a hundred bucks now, and they're paying a very small part of it, and they just don't, they don't, they don't see that. Um, they're putting in wellness incentives, concierge care, consumer-directed plans, and doing a better job of provider relations. And then you can expect that the employer lobby is going to continue to seek government assistance in helping curb healthcare costs by setting an example of payment incentives that can be used by private employers. And I've talked about this in, in numerous things. Before we get into our questions, let's, uh, let's do our third and final polling question. How would you rate this course in terms of information presented? Was it A, very useful, B, somewhat useful, or C, it little new information that you, that you didn't already know? And uh, while you're doing that, uh, Natalie, can we go ahead and uh, answer questions? Or do we have any questions? Yes, we don't have a lot, but we have maybe two or three. The first okay. one is, what is self-insured? Can you briefly explain? Uh, very briefly, self-insured simply means that an employer, instead of, instead of uh, paying premium to an insurance company, uh, takes, that, takes that money, puts it into a trust account that's managed by a, uh, the employer or a third-party administrator who purchases stop-loss insurance coverage to protect them from large catastrophic claims. Uh, they 
they purchase administrative services from a, a licensed bonded third-party administrator to pay their claims and then they set up a plan document that's um, that allows their employees to have a, a reasonably um, accurate benefit for what the employer's needs are and effectively um, you know they they pay just the net cost of health care uh, you no longer have a, a uh, uh, an 80 or 85 percent loss ratio rule because the self-insured plan are not subject to those rules. So it, it's very popular by large employers who are probably paying in excess of, you know, 500,000 to a million dollars a year of of premium. And if you're paying less than that, you probably should not look at self-insurance. Uh, rather, there are alternatives to that. But if you're paying more than 500,000 to say a million dollars a year and fully insured premium, you, you should look at self-insurance as a possible alternative. Okay, next question. What price transparency tools are available to drive usage into more efficient networks for large groups? Well, we touched on that a little bit. One, one is the healthcare uh, blue book, which can be uh, very, uh, very interesting. Uh, it's a service that the employer can subscribe to and it gives their individual employees the ability to go online put in a, a username and then look up you know procedures you know where where do you live and what procedure are you talking about and then it will show you the names of doctors and hospitals that will provide that procedure and what their and what their charges are the estimated charges uh, there are some other uh, organizations out there for example uh, we have a, a program called healthiest you uh, through teledoc that actually provides a similar service to help uh, employees uh, go out and identify uh, less expensive healthcare providers uh, searching for them or uh, specialists, for example, for certain types of needs they have. So there are, there are some really interesting things. And um, you know, if, if, you, if you want the, the names of some specific uh, organizations all, I'm, I'm happy to give them to you offline. You can contact me and I'm happy to share those with you, but I'm, I'm not going to do a commercial uh, for them today. <laughs> Anything else? Let me see. There's the issue of balance billing. How do you overcome balance billing issues? Well, again, you need to expect that there are going to be balance billing issues on any reference-based pricing plan. Okay, I, to, to say that it never happens, that's a lie. It, it, they will happen. And if you're working with the right third-party administrator and reference-based pricing organization, it's handled very well. Um, simple example is this. Some, somebody goes, they, they show their doctor their uh, uh, ID card, which, which then puts them in contact with the uh, administrator who says, okay, this is how much um, we pay uh, for this service. Um, is if you were in a PPO network, but this is this is the reasonable charge, and this is what we pay for that. And then they negotiate in advance with the doctor or hospital what those charges are going to be, um, and then they agree to that. Well, okay, so it comes back later that the uh, the hospital's billing department didn't get the message, didn't get the memo, so they continue to send out this bill to the uh, individual asking for them to pay the balance. So. The first thing that the individual does is they call the third party administrator and say, I'm getting a balance bill for my hospital. Uh, what do I do? And then the administrator says, we'll take care of it. Send us a copy of it. 
we'll take it from here. They then contact the hospital, remind the billing department that they had an arrangement in advance that was set up to pay the reasonable fee and what that was done. They then show them how much of that fee that they paid and that the hospital had agreed to that fee. If the hospital says, well, we're sorry, we made a mistake and we need more money because uh, there were this and that, then they will negotiate uh, until both parties agree that the, the new negotiated fee is acceptable and they agree not to balance bill from that point. As I said, in less than 1% of cases, uh, will it, it could go to arbitration. And that's where the legal people at the reference-based pricing company will interject um, uh, you know, in, in the situation and they'll, they'll say, okay, we can, we can do it this way or that way, but you know, this is what we're, we're going to do. I mean, if you, you want to have this all laid out in, in an arbitration session of what your, uh, what your bill charges are off the charge master, versus what you're getting paid by Medicare and private insurance companies and this and that, you know, have at it. And, and again, the, the vast majority of cases, they don't go to arbitration because providers don't want to do that. And then finally, the uh, reference-based pricing legal team makes sure that if there was any report to the person's credit about failure to pay a bill, that that gets cleaned off of there because of the federal laws that require that. So um, it, it, there are bumps. I mean, it's going to happen. But uh, again, in the vast majority of cases, it gets resolved with you just need to communicate with the carrier. Uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a balanced bill and they'll, they'll take it and they'll handle it from there. And we've had those, we've had those things happen. And, and they, I haven't had any cases in the last five years that went to arbitration. <laughs> it, all, it was all resolved. Many doctors argue that they lose money on Medicare patients. So how yeah. agreeable will they be to accept a reference-based pricing model based off of Medicare? Well, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, so I'll, I'll, I'll be very candid with you. Um, you know, there are some communities where, you know, if, if you don't have multiple competing hospitals or multiple competing healthcare systems, it can get a little dicey. But, you know, you go to a doctor's office and you say, hey, hey, look, uh, you, you've agreed to accept Medicare. Yes, we do. But we lose money on Medicare. OK, well, then what percentage of Medicare can we pay you to make this go away? What do you mean? We've agreed to pay you 150 percent of Medicare. Are you saying that that's not uh, that, that that's not enough? Well, uh, no, it's not. I want more. OK, well, and then they negotiate with them. And and all of these plans that have this feature in it, uh, they do not go back after the member to pay that negotiated difference. So if 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 the doctor's bill is ten thousand dollars and and the doctor says, well, I, I want twelve thousand five hundred dollars instead of ten thousand, uh, and then the plan agrees to pay it, uh, that additional twenty five hundred dollars that they're agreeing to pay, that is not the responsibility of the individual. They have to pay that. That's be, the plan takes care of that. So there's a lot of things in, in place here. There, there will be some tension between doctors and, 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 and you know, uh, well, I say more hospitals than doctors, but there'll be some tension there. And that's what the purpose of these RBP companies are, is negotiating with them until they come to an arrangement that, that they both agree is, is a fair price. Again, it's not perfect. 
and there are some there there have been some lawsuits in this country between hospital systems and all but it's interesting because at the end of the day they end up settling these suits because these hospitals and doc they don't want to show their bill charge fees out there for as radically high as they are so there are some good things you can do there what establishes a reasonable fee to the providers and hospitals? I'm sorry, who establishes? Well, it's it's generally in, in the plan document will we'll indicate that the, the administrator will define a reasonable fee as say 155 or 150% of Medicare. Okay, that, that's generally the starting point. There are some that will say it's lower than that and there are others that will be more than that. I know that in a number of plan documents that we have uh, in place, uh, they'll start at 150% and they will allow up to say 250% of Medicare in a negotiated schedule. So, so it can be negotiated upwards. Um, but when you look at what the value of that is in compared to say some of these PPO plans, uh, it's, it's still saving them money. And so, um, you know, that, that's why I've suggested that in many cases you can use reference-based pricing with the hospitals and keep the doctors on a PPO plan. How is the reasonable fee calculated? As I said, uh, most of the time they use a metric point based on a percentage of Medicare. And of course the Medicare payment depends on what area of the country you're in and you know, all this and that, but but because that's all public information now, what the Medicare allowances are and what the provider costs are, because they have to report that to the federal government in order to get reimbursed by Medicare, and all that is public information. So the provider then says, look, we, we, we know that Medicare in this area pays you 140% of your costs. You've reported those costs, and, and that's what you're getting from Medicare we're going to offer you 150% of what the Medicare allowance is. Will that work? Again, there are some hospitals that'll say, uh, hey, you know, we, we're still losing money. We, we're just not gonna accept it. And, that, and that's happened in some parts of California. Um, and so in, in some of those cases, people will say, I'm gonna enroll in a PPO plan. Uh, I don't wanna be in a reference-based pricing plan because my doctor doesn't accept reference-based pricing or Medicare. And again, that, that could be the issue. If the doctor doesn't accept Medicare to begin with, then yes, I think it's gonna be more of an issue. But, it, but again, 90% of doctors and hospitals are now accepting Medicare payment as payment in full. Um, perfect, it looks like that's all the questions we have. Yeah, that's all the questions we have for today. Um, of course, if you have any questions in regards to any technical issues you um, or any other thing besides the presentation, please definitely contact me by phone, preferably by email. Um, and of course, if you have any like any questions about the presentation itself, I am not the expert. Mr. David Fear Sr. is, and there's his contact information on the screen. All, as said earlier, all of our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the presentation and the slide deck will be sent to you in a thank you email by myself. So please be on the lookout for that. Sometimes I've heard it goes to spam um, and I promise I won't spam. So please definitely keep an eye on, keep an eye on, keep an eye out for that. Sorry, I'm talking tight this morning. 
Um, and of course, um, we report the e-credits to the California Department of Insurance within two working days. I'm sorry, really quick, um, before we before we say our goodbyes, 90% voted that this course was very useful information. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Great. It's great. Okay. It's That's great. Um, well, thank you all very much. And uh, look for, you know, our, our last C presentation of the year will be two weeks from today. We're going to do a recap of the ACA and uh, employers compliance for that. A lot of uh, employers have some things they need to do uh, by the end of the year to make sure they're in compliance with the ACA. So uh, that's what we're going to be dealing with in two weeks and hope to see you there. Perfect. Um, that being said, thank you so much, Mr. David Fair, and thank you everyone for joining us. Have a great rest of your Thursday and upcoming weekend. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Take care.